Greetings and welcome to episode number 21 of Unrelated Things, the podcast where I get to speak to you about what I've seen and heard lately that either interests me or irritates me. I think you just nailed it. So first up on episode number 21... The a U.S. court sentences Boston bomber Sarnayev to death. This story is from Al Jazeera.com. A U.S. jury has decided Jokar Sarnayev should die for his role in the Boston Marathon bombing in April 2013. The sentence came after 14 hours of deliberations on whether Sarnayev, who was a teenager when he carried out the attacks with his elder brother Tamerlan, should be imprisoned for the rest of his life or be executed. The 21-year-old did not react when the sentence was read out. Sarnayev was convicted of all 30 federal charges against him, 17 of which carried the possibility of the death penalty. And that jury did sentence him to death in that trial. I am a very strong opponent of the death penalty. I think in our day and age, we have other options in dealing with violent criminals. I've spoken of this before. Um, we do have the options to, you know, lock people away for life, make sure they are separate and segregated from society where they can no longer harm anyone in, in the public. And I think that is a much better choice than ending someone's life. In a related story, maybe not exactly related, but a story related to the death penalty, a story in the Huffington Post by Paige Lavender called Seven Things You Should Know About the Death Penalty, Even If You Support It. So prior to uh, Sarnayev's um, sentence uh, to death, Massachusetts outlawed capital punishment in 1982, and they hadn't put anyone to death since 1947. Sarnayev was eligible for the death penalty because he faced federal charges and was tried in federal court. A Boston Globe poll from April revealed that fewer than 20% of Massachusetts residents favored execution for Sarnayev. So these are the people closest to the terror bombing that the Sarnayev brothers carried out. And they still, by a very, very wide margin, uh, did not support execution for Sarnayev. About 1 in 25 people who are sentenced to death are likely innocent, according to new statistical study published by the, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I think this is one of the outside of the general my general feeling about the death penalty in that the state which is in a democracy essentially a representative of us should not be killing anybody for any reason um, when there are other alternatives to doing so I think that the risk of sentencing someone to death who 
was not actually guilty of the crime, even though court may have found them guilty of the crime. I think that is the one of the worst elements in our process uh, in executing people who have been convicted and been sentenced to death. Executions can be excruciatingly long affairs. So even though um, the methods of execution have been mostly deemed by courts when they've been challenged to be um, constitutional in, in such that they are not um, excessive uh, methods of punishment. Um, the methods are fallible. Uh, everything from the electric chair to hanging to lethal injection. While it's designed to make the death quick, it is far from always the case that it works out that way. In Oklahoma, Clayton Lockett was pronounced dead 45 minutes after his April 2014 execution began. The average length of the previous executions in Oklahoma were about 6 to 12 minutes. Execution methods often cause physical pain. I think as a civil society, I think as a civil society, we shouldn't be putting people to death, period. Um, in choosing to do so, I think it is up to us to make sure that we minimize suffering during that process. Very few countries perform executions, and we're in some questionable company with the ones that do. So, based on uh, death sentences and executions, um, a chart produced by Amnesty International, by far China has the most uh, executions in 2014, with over 550. They're followed by Iran at 289, Saudi Arabia at 90, Iraq at 61, and then the U.S. at 35. The next uh, six or seven or ten in line are countries like Sudan, Yemen, Egypt, Somalia, Jordan, uh, Equatorial Guinea. They we're to not wanting to uh, offend any of the other countries on this list. So I would say, you know, China would probably be the the notable exception to this list. But as a country that that defines ourselves or feels that we are a world leader and that we are, you know, a first world country. The company on this chart is company that I think that we would not want to stack ourselves up against um, in any other measure. Yes, uh, that should be, uh, that absolutely should be abolished. And that is my opinion on the death penalty. Absolutely should be abolished. So I spoke last episode about Bernie Sanders joining the presidential race, and the media has treated Bernie Sanders as a long shot, which I 
I don't fully object to. I think noting that uh, in the popularity race, um, Hillary Clinton, and and even in the uh, the planning of the campaign, Hillary Clinton is is far ahead at this point in time. Many people and much of the news media believe that it's all but inevitable that she will be the nominee for the Democratic um, candidate for president. Um, but Bernie joined the race. Um, like I said, Bernie has been getting a lot of that uh, negative or dismissive um, comments within the press. And I think they're all in for a big surprise. And he's even come out straight straight ahead and said, don't underestimate me on more than one occasion. And I think there there is a, um, a large portion of the press that are underestimating what Bernie can deliver. Uh, case in point, in one of the earliest um, measures of uh, candidates, of Democratic candidates... Um, support out there um there was a wisconsin straw poll that happened over the last weekend um and here's a little bit of a story from politico.com by jonathan topaz uh over the weekend in a wisconsin straw poll there was reason to give the Hillary camp pause and the Bernie Sanders camp hope Sanders scored a strong second place finish with 41% of the vote to Clinton's 49%. The Vermont Senator, a self-described so democratic socialist. A lot of stories like to point that out and it's nothing that, that, uh, Bernie has hidden behind. He has been, you know, outspoken and open about his self-proclaimed um, democratic socialism. Um, but Bernie Sanders, uh, in, the, in the sentence that I interrupted, continues, let me, let me start it over. The Vermont senator, a self-described democratic socialist and a long shot for the White House, received 208 delegate votes at the Wisconsin Democratic Party convention in Milwaukee, while Clinton won votes from 252 of the delegates, leaving her just short of a majority of the 511 total. So, uh, a early glimpse at some of the support that uh, Bernie Sanders is garnering. Um, there were a couple other people in the straw poll as well. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden, who has not... Um, announced that he would be running it, um, and also governor, former governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley, who has announced that he has been running both received 3% of the votes. And then uh, former Virginia Senator Jim Webb, who has not announced yet won 2% while governor Rhode governor, former Rhode Island governor Lincoln Chafee, who did announce his um, candidacy received 1%. Down, lower, 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 lower. So if you check out my website at unrelatedthings.net, 
you'll be able to see actually a lot of these stories uh, or links to a lot of these stories posted. And you'll be able to see um, a font that I came across, uh, which is really interesting. This is a story from mentalfloss.com. And it is called, This Font Simulates What It's Like to Have Dyslexia. This is a very visual story, so I definitely encourage you, if you want to take a look what this looks like, which is really interesting, um, to look up uh, dyslexia font. And here's a bit of this story. When graphic designer Daniel Britton shared his recent dyslexia diagnosis with his classmates at the London School of Communications, he was met with confusion, blank stares, and outright derision. Realizing that there was no way for them to truly understand his struggle to make sense of letters, Britton decided to create a font called Dyslexia in order to give non-dyslexic a sense of what the learning disorder entails. The designer tells Fast Company the font isn't meant to depict exactly what a dyslexic sees when he or she picks up a text. Quote, at least in the UK, awareness ads will represent text as seen by dyslexic as a bunch of blurry letters or an upside-down letter form, Britton says. At least for me, that's not what it's like at all. It's more like the text looks normal, but the part of my brain that decodes it just isn't awake. So what this text looks like is, it looks like the Helvetica font with a number of the lines or or letter segments missing, just cut out or blanked out. Um, so every letter only, only has a portion of what the full letter looks like um, to most of us. It's really interesting trying to read. There's a, a block of text um, in the story. It's really interesting trying to read what that text says in the dyslexia font. What did you expect? From the inquisitor.com. It took a massive paint spill and an arrest to teach one trucker that texting while driving is not a good idea. A portion of Interstate 68 was left a sloppy mess and the related cleanup effort will take days. The spill occurred on Wednesday, four miles west of Hancock, Maryland. Police say that the trucker was texting on a cell phone at the time of the incident and lost control of his vehicle. The truck was carrying thousands of gallons of yellow and white paint when it overturned. Some of the barrels spilled paint all over the road at the site of the accident. According to New York Magazine, enough paint was dumped onto the interstate Quote, to fill an above-ground swimming pool. Oh, no. I had a reason, don't know what it could be, and the road I must travel, 
And that is Tom Morello and his song, The Road I Must Travel. Storyinthexaminer.com lays out one of Tom Morello's newest endeavors. On a quest to bring back, quote, socially conscious music, Rage Against the Machine and former audio slave guitarist Tom Morello and musician Ryan Harvey of Riot Folk, a musician's collective, have formed their own record label, Firebrand Records. According to the new label's website, what makes Firebrand unique is its support of activism-driven artists and lyrics. Some of the current artists have focuses in causes like Black Lives Matter, the fight against tyranny and corruption, refugees, international politics, and depression, among other things. So there's a half a dozen or so artists signed now to this um, to Firebrand Records. And it's really exciting to see Tom Morello and Ryan Harvey putting this uh, label together. As I've, as I've said before, I, I listen to music for the lyrics and the message in the music. Uh, I, I like political music for the most part um, in a wide variety of styles. So it makes it really, really challenging for me to find new artists without some places like this to go. I've listened to a few of these artists that I've never heard of before and um, found some new artists to start to follow and to, to start to listen to. As I stated before, I started a portion of my website called Polyrical, um, which focuses on music with political lyrics, and this really fits right in and ties right in. Um, one of the things that I think has been really challenging for me in, in finding new artists is listening to something like um, iTunes Radio. There's some, you know, kind of the genius function there. You can choose a song or an artist and have more songs, have, have the iTunes Radio select additional music to go along the same lines. I find that it's really lacking in using lyrical content as a indicator of what other music to add to that station. Um, I find it, it does pretty well at um, maintaining a certain musical style within a station, but if the, for me, if the song doesn't say something to me lyrically, then I really have usually little interest in it. And there are a few exceptions. There are some of uh, my favorites, um, Depeche Mode, and They Might Be Giants, that don't always lyrically tackle the uh, political subjects that I'm interested in, but I find just musically are still very compelling to me. So there is, uh, I'm not locked into only only political lyrics, but it is something that really dominates my music listening and the, and the music I really enjoy listening to. I'm going to move on now. 
A story from thedailybeast.com by David Friedlander. It was a kind of moment teachers covet, an advanced placement English class focusing on poetry, and a student brings in a poem that caught his eye, hoping to discuss in the waning moments of the period how the poet uses language in his work. The teacher, David Olio, a 19-year veteran of the South Windsor School District and winner of Connecticut's highest award for teaching excellence, didn't know the poem in question, but he took a look and walked the students through it in the remaining time. The poem the student discovered and brought in was Please Master, an extremely graphic account of a homosexual encounter published by Allen Ginsberg in 1968 that begins... Please, Master, can I touch your cheek? Please, Master, can I kneel at your feet? Please, Master, can I loosen your blue pants? Clearly, I wandered lonely as a cloud. This wasn't. But the students were 17- and 18-year-olds, some of whom were taking the AP course in conjunction with the University of Connecticut and receiving college credit. One day after the class, Olio was placed on indefinite, unpaid leave by the district. Seventy-two hours later, the district began termination proceedings against him. Three weeks after that, he agreed to resign. So this award-winning teacher in Connecticut um, was forced to resign over the content of a poem that he read and discussed in a part of a class. Um, I think that it's a, a major overreaction to the circumstances. Uh, I am familiar with the poem, having read it when I was probably in my first year of college, though maybe read it in my senior year of high school um, when I was reading some Allen Ginsberg. Um, it, it becomes graphic, but it's no more graphic than a lot of what 17, 18, 19 year olds see and hear uh, outside of the classroom. And it was in a setting where it could be discussed. Um, and from what I understand, the topic that the class had been focusing on was um, language and censorship. Um, so I think it was appropriate for for the class and don't think that the reaction was appropriate to it. All right, cool. The Vatican has officially recognized the state of Palestine in a new treaty. The Vatican announced that it is set to sign its first accord with Palestine, sparking the ire of Israeli authorities and prompting allegations that such a move will be damaging to the fragile Middle East peace process. According to NPR, the new treaty will switch the Vatican's diplomatic relations from the Palestinian, the Palestine Liberation Organization to the State of Palestine. Vatican spokesman Reverend Federico Lombardi confirmed that the treaty represents an acknowledgement on the part of the Holy See that the state of Palestine exists. The Vatican has referred to a Palestinian state since February 2013, following a November 2012 recognition vote by the UN General Assembly. Oh boy, howdy.
That is four of two by They Might Be Giants, and I really, it brought to mind that song when I read the following story from OddityCentral.com. Unwilling to accept that he was stood up, a Taiwanese man has reportedly been waiting for his date to show up for the last two decades. 47-year-old Aji is now a permanent fixture at Tainan train station where the love of his life promised to meet him all those years ago. It's unclear whether the girl in question was his lover or if they had arranged to meet for their first date. All we know is that he went to the station expecting to see her and he has never left since. In the initial years, Aji was always seen hovering over a large staircase as though ready to greet someone. After a few years of waiting, he moved to a side door next next to the exit, from where he stares at passengers' faces every day. The man is so heartbroken that he has taken to a life of hunger and homelessness at the station. Mobile vendors at the station sometimes give him food to eat, while a few family members visit him occasionally with fresh clothes. They've tried to convince him to come home, but he is adamant about waiting for his girl. Three years ago, social workers arranged for a place for him to live, but he refused to move claiming that he is used to waiting now. So that is a story of dedication to one's imagination of what might be. Oh, that's nice. Oh, isn't it, though? From the telegraph.co.uk. A man who regularly suffered a blocked nose sneezed out the cause. A toy dart stuck up his nostril for 44 years. Steve Easton, age 51, often had a case of the sniffles or a headache and put it down to hay fever, but his nasal passages are now clear for the first time since he was a toddler. After one big blowout last week, cleared the problem. He sneezed and out flew the sucker tip of a toy dart, which had been up his nose since he was a boy. Mr. Easton said the mildly decomposed sucker has been lodged in his nasal cavity since the 1970s. He told his mother, Pat, now 77. He was amazed to find his parents had taken him to hospital after they thought he inhaled the dart when he was seven. And that visit to the hospital turned up nothing. They were worried about him having swallowed or inhaled the dart tip and apparently did not check his nasal cavity for the tip of that dart. Are you kidding me? Not kidding. From daily.com. 
And this is a story um, of, or, or another aspect, another piece of the story in the comics industry, which is unfortunately all too common in many industries where um, women get less recognition and get uh, short shrift for their work and their contribution. If you are one of those people who's been witnessing the continued exclusion of Black Widow from Marvel's product lineup, then you've probably been looking forward to the toys accompanying Age of Ultron, the recent movie. After all, there's no better way to counterbalance the previous erasure of the only woman in the Avengers Ensemble than by Marvel inevitably putting out a toy motorcycle to go along with that great, truly memorable scene of Natasha kicking into high gear as she rides a Harley out of a plane. Right? No such luck. Even though... Age of Ultron gave Natasha one of the coolest moments in the film. The toy licensors at both Hasbro and Mattel have opted to completely erase Natasha from their toy versions of the Quinjet, the plane from which the bike launches. Instead, as John Marcotte at Heroic Girls first pointed out over the weekend, Natasha has been replaced as the bike rider by Captain America in the Hasbro version and Iron Man in the Mattel version. This is the worst radio ever. One of Bernie Sanders' uh, key topics has been the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a trade agreement that Obama is negotiating um, along the lines of the North America Free Trade Agreement and other similar agreements. And there's a story um, about that in In These Times by Alexandros Orphanides. Trade agreements are about more than business. They're about who has final say in the way people around the world live. What they eat, how much they are paid, what medicines they can buy, and whether they have jobs. Such agreements shape economic policies that impact billions of people. The discussions surrounding these agreements are far too important to be done in secret. But that's precisely how the Obama administration is trying to pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The TPP is a massive trade agreement between the United States, Canada, Chile, Australia, Brunei, Jerusalem, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. Observers like Mireya Solis, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, have called it, quote, the most ambitious trade initiative pursued by the Obama administration. Proponents of the TPP argue that the agreement will encourage global economic integration, increase U.S. competitiveness in a dynamic Asia region, and stimulate political reform, leading to more open markets. All this, they claim, will result in better jobs, wages, and products. 
Critics of the agreement say that it amounts to the promulgation of corporate globalization and neoliberalization and have likened it to NAFTA on steroids. In a recent interview in Salon, Noam Chomsky described the TPP's aims as to, quote, maximize profit and domination and to set the working people of the world in competition with one another to lower wages and increase insecurity and to protect at the same time the top wealth sector. I think the uh, description from the critics is more accurate and one that I um, definitely am more aligned with. It, it brings up kind of the way that the system works right now. Um, the system works to create and uh, accumulate more wealth for the wealthy, whether they be the wealthy businesses or the wealthy individuals. Much of what our political and economic system is built around, much of the uh, underpinnings and laws and rules are designed for the accumulation of wealth. Um, to certain segments and exclusion of other segments of our society from, from that. Um, there's a lot of, or maybe there's not a lot, but there's increasing talk of income inequality and there's risk when politicians, you know, bring up income inequality that they're going to be, uh, charged with instigating class war. Well, as far as I'm concerned, um, class war has been ongoing for a long time, and talking about income inequality is not instigating class war. It's waking up and recognizing that class war has has been going on for a long time, and the wealthy are winning. Uh Warren Buffett said so himself, um, one of the biggest beneficiaries of our current system, uh, but one who, who will occasionally, maybe not even occasionally, one who will speak the truth at times on what that means um, to our society. Um, one that will point out that he, with his billions, has a lower marginal tax rate than his secretary, who... who has nowhere near the income and the wealth that he has. So uh, class war has been ongoing for quite a long time now, and the accusations of people instigating class war are usually made by the people who are benefiting from it and want to um, keep the majority of the population focused elsewhere. Yeah, we got to get some of that. From Consumerist.com, the 21st century has not been kind to the trademark texture of a mental cheese. To Americans, that's Swiss cheese, which brings up something interesting. In America, we have a lot of things like Swiss cheese and Canadian bacon and French toast, uh, a lot of which didn't originate and is not familiar 
especially in those terms, to people in those countries. But the holes in Swiss cheese have been vanishing, and the cheese has, becoming, has become smoother over time. Scientists were determined to find out why. The answer? Modern cheese is just too clean. The AP reports that a Swiss government-funded agricultural institute delved into the mystery of the nation's most famous cheese and found that holes need hay. Or more specifically, that, quote, microscopically small hay particles, unquote, that make their way into the milk are responsible for the holes when the milk becomes cheese. The solution to the dwindling holes? More hay. In a series of tests, the AP reports, scientists added different amounts of hay dust to the milk and discovered it allowed them to regulate the number of holes. So coming soon to your cheese, more holes and more hay. Oh my gosh. A story from Inquisitor.com. So far, nearly 15,000 websites have blocked Congress IPs from accessing them in an effort to voice their displeasure against the current NSA surveillance laws. As the sites block Congress, others are posting their photos with the hashtag #IFeelNaked to back up the protests. The Fight for the Future group has provided code so sites can block Congress ahead of the possible reauthorization of NSA surveillance laws under the current Patriot Act, which allows the NSA and FBI to collect data in an effort to curb terror attacks. While this is a very noble cause, citizens are concerned at just how much information is being collected, who can view the information, and subsequently what it could potentially be used for. Sites have put a block against Congress IP addresses from accessing their sites, which then redirects these Congress addresses to the Blackout Congress website, a site that explains exactly why the blackout is occurring. So I think this is a good creative form of protest of the NSA surveillance law. Um, and at this point, the Patriot Act has expired, and the act that many had hoped would replace it and allow for the bulk collection of metadata to wind down over many months. That also did not pass. So Congress is scrambling to put together new rules and new laws to spy on us. So anyway, there you go. Gizmodo dot com dot au reports on a clever new invention about a billion people live without electricity and they often turn to kerosene lamps ultra dangerous carcinogen spouting open flames that could turn homes into tinder boxes so a new indiegogo campaign out to provide safe reusable lights that need zero outside energy sources it's called gravity light and it's kind of like those hand-crank-powered camp lanterns you see at Bed Bath & Beyond. But instead of 10 minutes of manual cranking, the light is powered by gravity. It looks kind of like a pulley hanging from the ceiling. You lift an 11-kilogram weight. 
You can use rocks, sand, whatever. It doesn't come with a particular weight, so you can use a variety of items as a weight. After the weight has reached the top and you let go, it slowly descends, powering a drive sprocket and gear train that lights an LED. Once the bag hits the floor, you repeat the process. The light lasts 20 to 30 minutes each cycle. So this is a really interesting new invention, uh, a new way to power um, electric light in uh, areas where that power is more difficult to come by. So this could be in areas that are just not well served by electricity at this point. This could be in disaster areas where there, there have been uh, breakages in the power supply. Um, so a really interesting new light which uh, does not rely on outside sources of power to make it work. That people watch it and then it's a thing. Theinquisitor.com has this story. Bill Novak and Norman MacArthur went from being father and son to getting a license to legally marry according to the Daily Mail. And at it, it, uh, first read or first listen to that sentence, it, this story definitely sounds really unusual and potentially a little disturbing. But when you find out the facts about the story, I think that it makes a, a whole lot of sense. So Novak, age 78, and MacArthur, age 76, have been together for more than 50 years. They registered as domestic partners in New York City in 1994. After moving to Bucks County in Pennsylvania, they learned that Pennsylvania law does not recognize domestic partners and prohibits same-sex marriages. Their relationship through adoption was solely a technicality to enable the rights they desperately wanted but were not legally able to attain as a married couple. Their lawyer advised them that the only way to become legally related was through adoption. So the two men became father and son in 2000 when Novak adopted MacArthur, only two years his junior, to give them legal rights to each other. Fifteen years later, the United States District Court declared Pennsylvania's marriage laws prohibiting same-sex marriages to be unconstitutional. Novak and MacArthur are in their 70s, but according to the court, they can get married. However, they are still father and son in the eyes of the Pennsylvania court. The next step was to have the adoption vacated. In May, Judge Gary B. Gilman of Bucks County Orphans Court vacated the adoption decree. This will allow the two men, who were once father and son, to marry. One of the biggest yeah. deals ever, in the history of ever. And a story from APNewsArchive.com by Mary Claire Jelonic. And this one really, for me, ties very well into the earlier story about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And one of the ways that uh, trade agreements such as those impact us here in the United States. House Committee is moving swiftly to get rid of labels on packages of meat that say where the animals were born, raised, and slaughtered. 
The House Agriculture Committee will consider a bill to repeal a, quote, country of origin labeling law for meat two days after the World Trade Organization ruled against parts of it. The labels tell consumers what countries the meat is from. For example, born in Canada, raised and slaughtered in the United States, or born, raised and slaughtered in the United States. The WTO ruled Monday that the U.S. labels put Canadian and Mexican livestock at a disadvantage, rejecting a U.S. appeal after a similar WTO decision last year. The Obama administration had already revised the labels once to try to comply with the previous ruling. Now that the revised labels have been also been struck down, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack has called on Congress to change the law to avoid retaliation, such as extra tariffs from the two neighbor countries. The bill to repeal the rule would go beyond just the muscle cuts of red meat that were covered under the WTO case, also repealing country of origin labeling for poultry, ground beef, and pork. So this shows how the trade agreements that we have signed in the past can have impacts on us that may not be beneficial to us. Um, the labeling laws that we have in this country are very useful to provide information to consumers of the source of their food and the contents of their food, and among, among other things. Clothing has uh, l labels for country of origin. Their um, most consumer goods have country of origin labels, and not only labels on the packaging, but just about every consumer good somewhere has imprinted, stamped, or, or on a sticker um, on, the, on the item itself has country of origin labels. Uh, the iPhone says, depending on where exactly your particular iPhone was built, um, but primarily says um, designed by Apple in California and manufactured in China. So trade agreements that allow other countries to sue over labeling laws and many, many other rules and laws and regulations of our country um, do not benefit the consumers here and are suspect. And, and there's good reasons why people challenge these laws and what these laws contain. They don't want to talk about it. And they don't want to talk about it is really the case with the uh, TPP because this has been negotiated in secret, uh, well, at least in secret from the public, and the text of the TPP has not been released and, and won't be released, and yet the Congress has voted to allow that to go forward and to be voted on a strict up or down vote, also known as fast track um, and they don't want to talk about it because they don't want us to know ahead of time what may be in the policies that they are drafting uh, for the treaties that we follow. It's horrid. 
A McDonald's in Michigan had enough of a belligerent customer who showed up in scuba gear and had a few beers to drink before walking into the restaurant, so they called the police on him. According to M Live, the man walked into the McDonald's on Front Street in Traverse City in scuba gear. Although it was odd enough, that's not why employees at the McDonald's decided the police needed to come and remove the man from the restaurant. It was because the man was causing a disturbance by yelling about something. But what he was yelling is unknown. The scuba-clad man decided not to stick around long enough for the police to show up. Once the police eventually caught up to the man, Detective Sergeant James Bussell said the man was warned that the McDonald's did not want him to return to it. The police did not find the man to be intoxicated enough for arrest, said Bustle. Quote, as far as wearing scuba gear and having a couple of beers, that's legal. The man was warned to not return to the McDonald's, and that was all. We have complete and utter freedom of speech uh, for the most part. For the most part. This story is from BuzzFeed.com by Ruby Kramer. When they heard Hillary Clinton would be here on Friday in Hampton, a small coastal town just south of the main border, Lenore and Gary Patton contacted the campaign. They wanted to lend a hand as volunteers. The morning of the event, a roundtable discussion about small businesses at the locally owned Smutty Nose Brewing Company, the Pattons arrived early, Help set up and secured the best spot in the house, front row, first two seats. Lenore, 78, and Gary, 77, had a perfect view of the candidate. Had this been a typical event, the Pattons may not have been able to attend. Clinton aides emphasize in every email, memo, and press release that this campaign is about everyday Americans. But as a result of efforts to keep each gathering intimate, allowing Clinton to best, quote, get the input of everyday Americans, few Americans of that particular stripe actually end up in the room. Clinton's campaign functions are typically so small that there is barely an audience, just a handful of invited guests, often local Democratic officials. The roundtable in Hampton was Clinton's largest yet. About 60 people came, including the Pattons, who described themselves as local activists who, quote, fervently supported, unquote, Barack Obama in 2008 and now, quote, fervently support Clinton. The rest of the group was a mix, some invited by the campaign, some invited by the brewery, and others who simply asked to come. According to a Clinton aide, the campaign was able to accommodate nearly every request to attend that they received. That particular part of this story seems very telling to me, and and it makes me wonder. I am 100% certain that Hillary Clinton could attract some fairly large crowds, but I don't understand why at this stage of her campaign, granted it's extremely early, but that she isn't using that tactic yet um, to say that they were able to accommodate nearly every request they received and that 60 people came. That means not very many more than 60 people um, requested to attend the event. 
that is an extraordinarily small number um, to see who is deemed the not even deemed, but who is who is known to be the front running candidate for president for the Democratic primary um, to to be to have the interest in New Hampshire, the first primary state of only about 60 people for this particular event um, and, and not an event where it was a big fundraising event where you had to pay a lot of money to attend, um, but just a an event that ostensibly would be more open to the average you know average person um i think it just speaks volumes of the limits that the current path or the current portion of hillary's campaign are are put are are living under um in really controlling access to her very very strictly uh don't know why they're still following that tactic at this point and I think that will probably change soon Bernie Sanders did a tour in Iowa a week and a half ago or so and in Davenport Iowa he attracted 700 people he filled the space where he was speaking Um, it was the largest event in Iowa so far for for the presidential race Um, on the same day Martin O'Malley who uh, had may not yet announce, have announced or may have just announced he attracted about 60 to 70 people in the same city. Um, on another stop on Bernie's tour, he, I believe this one was in Wisconsin, but it may have been in Minnesota. Um, he attracted upwards of 4,000 people. And again, to a space that couldn't accommodate that many people. And and that space had been upgraded. Um, the original uh, speech was um, sponsored by a union and was in a much smaller venue. When they realized the demand was so high, they moved to a very large auditorium, and there were overflow crowds uh, for that as well. So people needed to stand outside and listen to the speech as opposed to getting inside and actually watching it. So just just bizarre to me that Hillary Clinton's campaign is is following this very, very scripted and restrictive um, uh, campaign process at this point. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. So a story in USA Today, exclusive interview, grounded gyrocopter pilot won't end protests. Doug Hughes, the Florida postal worker who landed a gyrocopter on the U.S. Capitol grounds last month and set off alarms about airspace security, made a lower-key return to the nation's capital on Wednesday. He arrived by car wearing a GPS-enabled ankle bracelet that transmits his every move to federal authorities. He's no less passionate, however, about the cause that could cost him his job and freedom, overhauling the nation's campaign finance system and ending what he sees as the rampant corruption on Capitol Hill. Quote, overall, Congress is in it for the money, Hughes declared during an interview as he headed towards Washington, where he's scheduled to be in court Thursday. 
Quote, they are in it for themselves. They are doing what special interests tell them to do, and we've been cut out of the political process. But we are the political body that has power over Congress, and we can bring this thing back, he said. Late Wednesday, federal prosecutors announced a six-count jury, six-count grand jury indictment against Hughes. He was charged with two felonies, operating an aircraft without a license and flying an unregistered aircraft. He also was indicted on three misdemeanor counts of violating national defense airspace and one count of improperly putting the U.S. Postal Service logo on his gyrocopter during his protest. He faces up to nine and a half years in prison. Quote, was it worth it? Absolutely, he said. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of Americans have given their lives for the cause of freedom. Right now there is a huge threat from within that our government is shifting to becoming a plutocracy. Hughes holds out hope of striking a plea deal with the feds. After all, there were no injuries, no property damage, and no intent to do harm, he said. But if the case goes to trial, Hughes said, quote, I don't believe a jury of 12 people is going to convict me of a felony when my intention was not to do anything except to get Congress to work for the people. By saying stuff like this, you're setting yourself up. So as India becomes more industrialized, they are following in the footsteps of the United States where their industrialization has led to bodies of water that can actually burn. The Bellender Lake in Bangalore, India is so polluted that it has caught fire. Officials and residents in Bangalore became alarmed when the lake actually caught fire after weeks of being covered in several feet of toxic foam. From a distance, the river foam makes the lake appear as if it were covered in deep snow. Underneath the foam, the lake's deep water has turned black from raw sewage and chemicals. According to the Huffington Post, experts say that a slurry of oil and phosphorus has created this combustible cocktail. Quote, these wetlands used to act as purifiers, but all such wetlands surrounding the lake have been encroached and there is no place for natural purification. Hence, the pollution at these lakes is uncontrollable, an unnamed officer for the local pollution control board said. And... Before Earth Day in the 70s, um, we had this problem in the United States. I don't remember for sure what river it was. And for some reason, the Cuyahoga River comes to mind. Uh, may or may not have been the correct body of water. Um, but at some point or points in our history, um, we had created such a toxic mess of some of our rivers that indeed at least one caught fire and burned. It's a sign of the end times. Speaking of signs of the end times, if you follow Apple at all and follow some of the rumor mill that uh, 
surrounds Apple and their products and their company, this particular story may be another sign of the end times. This is by Mitchell Broussard of MacRumors.com. Piper Jaffra analyst Gene Munster today confirmed that the asset management firm no longer expects an Apple-branded television set to launch in the future. This is earth-shattering. Gene Munster has been predicting an Apple-branded television set for a number of years, year after year. He's predicting it's around the corner. It will be coming out soon. And this is an amazing revelation from Gene Munster. Munster was well known to tout beliefs that the Cupertino company would be launching an Apple television set in the near future. Rumors that were reignited largely in part to a direct quote from Steve Jobs in Walter Isaacson's biography of the Apple CEO. The analyst began predicting a 2012-2013 launch year for the product in 2011. With the circulation of other news and rumors that year, and in intervening years, helping to propel the alleged Apple-branded TV set forward. Today, the Piper Jaffrey analyst notes that while the news confirms that Apple was at one point working on a television set, the firm was in fact wrong in its, quote, constant expectation of the product. Hello, Captain Redundant! So there was a great little story. This is another very visual story uh, in TheGuardian.com by Joe Blazon, B-L-A-S-O-N. And it is titled, China's Nail Houses, the Homeowners Who Refuse to Make Way in Pictures. So it is a very visual story. It's a number of photographs of development in China in which... um, a single or a couple of homeowners, either in a single home or in an apartment building, um, refused the buyouts that were offered to them and remained in place while the construction grew up around them. There is a portion of an apartment building in the middle of a busy highway with paving all the way around it. There is a small house in the middle of what appears to be a street um, in between some very large new apartment buildings. There's this very small single-story ranch uh, still there. And there are some buildings where everything from around them has been cleared and the, the surface level of the ground has been dug down, you know, Uh, dozens of feet below the surface level that the building is built on, or in one case, a water-filled moat has been built um, around this remaining portion of an old apartment building where someone is still living and has refused to move out. So I thought this was a pretty interesting uh, photo essay about what they call the nail houses in China. Sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes stuff happens. And Courtney Enlow on uprocks.com tells us about one of those times. 
When you're driving under the influence and you have weed in your car, it is important to be careful. You have to hide that stuff really well. A 21-year-old Lincoln man was arrested on suspicion of driving under the influence of alcohol and cited for possession of less than an ounce of marijuana after deputies found a container labeled, quote, not weed, unquote, under the front passenger seat of his car. That is really annoying. That is, and so is this. From Consumers.com by Mary Beth Quirk. Though sometimes it feels like your keys, wallet, or phone can just go walking away from where you left them. A man in Oregon was shocked this week to first find that his log cabin had been stolen. And then to find that it had somehow wandered 3,750 feet away from its original resting place. When this man came back to his property months after last being there and found the log cabin missing, he called the cops. Quote, Quite frankly, it's one of the most unusual moments I've ever seen, the sheriff said, adding that the home was listed for $10,000 for sale, but the buyer bargained it down to just 3000 And that sale of this cabin, which led to it being moved, was perpetrated by another of the cabin's owners. The cabin was actually owned by three different people, and one of those three had sold it uh, for $3,000, and the purchaser had moved the cabin, unbeknownst to the other owner of the cabin. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. Let's. So TheVerge.com had this article... Before it tackles net neutrality, the FCC is setting a major precedent for municipal broadband. It's just voted to preempt state laws that were preventing two cities from building out their own locally run, run broadband networks. The decision was prompted by separate petitions from Wilson, North Carolina and Chattanooga, Tennessee. Both cities that, uh, that have established high-speed gigabit internet services, but have been barred from expanding to neighboring communities due to existing state laws. So far, 19 states have similar regulations to those that the FCC is overriding in Wilson and Chattanooga, but today's ruling affects only those specific cases. So this is uh, good news. It's the right direction, in my opinion, for the FCC to restrict the ability for states to make laws that prohibit cities from expanding gigabit ethernet i think that the public benefits you know when more people more entities get involved in providing internet service um and the state laws that prevent that which is much more of the direction that even the federal government takes. States and federal governments often will impose rules and laws that restrict cities or localities or 
in the case of the federal government, that restrict states from blocking things. Um, blocking things like putting up cell towers. It's it's illegal for a city to ban the installation of a cell tower. Um, things like um, fracking. Uh, a lot of cities or a number of cities and communities have banned fracking and states like Texas are and I don't know if this there's federal government uh, I think there's actually two federal government um, bills in the works that would not allow states and local localities to ban fracking so it's good to see the FCC is kind of bucking that trend of taking away well, and maybe they're not bucking the trend. Maybe they're just participating in the trend, but doing it in the opposite direction in a way that where the state has already imposed the ban, the FCC is reversing the ban. So the FCC is actually saying, um, you know, you cannot ban the cities from expanding. Um, but a, a good or a better direction from the FCC than a lot of their past decisions. Look at that! Look at that. And that will wrap up this episode of Unrelated Things Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to read more about these stories and more, please check out unrelatedthings.net where I post these stories in the blog there you'll also find the other things that i have in the works you will find the website polyrical there as well as a page that's under construction for bernie sanders 2016 and find out what's going on for unrelated things so check that out at unrelatedthings.net and you can also follow unrelated things on twitter Thanks very much for listening.